Welcome to the Bellway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many different places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can always use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'll be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting your podcasts and leave those reviews. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us. They help us out in the algorithms for all these different places. And so I always look forward to seeing them and reading them. And as always, if you can't leave a review because some services don't allow it, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway. And so I'm always appreciative to see all of you guys sharing the show. In this week's episode, we're going to cover in the first segment the the two really big events that are coming past this week. You have the aftermath of the impeachment, which is impacting everything in Congress. And then there's Joe Biden's inauguration as the 46th president of the United States and the threats surrounding it. So we're going to go through both of those. And then in the second segment, we're going to go through the weekly COVID update. I'm going to go through the latest numbers and then cover why all the key metrics look good this week and why vaccinations are probably the key reason for that taking place. And then finally, you need to stick around for the light item segment this week because it focuses on a certain group that's helping out small businesses, specifically small restaurants, across the United States. So make sure to stick around for that. So that's the agenda for this week's show, and we can jump right in. So as I said, we're going to start off with the two big events, which is the continuing aftermath of the House impeachment and Joe Biden's inauguration, which is on Wednesday, January 20th. Uh, The Senate is going to reopen its business on the 19th. So they've been out even while all this business with the House has been taking place. And so you're going to see the Senate finally come back into business on the 19th. That'll be on Tuesday. And we're going to find out then what Democrats officially plan to do. You'll probably start hearing some of this on Monday or Tuesday There's still no news on whether or not they're actually going to send over their article of impeachment, which they voted on in the House and passed. But the maneuvering by both Democrats and Republicans in the media is beginning to grow considerably. You're seeing people, it's not just that they're making arguments, they're trying to negotiate and maneuver to sort of lay down where they want to start out these negotiations, because both sides have different incentives here that's impacting sort of what everyone wants to do. You have this really ironic scenario where Republicans actually want to go through with this trial right now, and Democrats don't really want to unless they can come up with a way to both have the trial and also get all the legislative and cabinet appointments that they want through. So it's a really interesting dynamic at play here. And on Sunday, there was a viral moment in the media, and it came from Senator Lindsey Graham, the Republican from South Carolina, who just rewon his uh, campaign. And he published a letter that he sent to Senator Chuck Schumer. He, of course, went on the Sunday shows to talk about this, too. And if everyone was jumping on it on social media, at least on Twitter, and because he was really in the letter, the window dressing around this is that it looks like he's pandering to the Trump base because 
he is saying, you know, uh, Democrats need to give up on the, the impeachment. They need, we just need to vote it out of the Senate because we need to move on. We need to move on with unity and we need to do all of these other things. And so everyone was saying, well, this is just shameless. Why could you say this? Because you were with Donald Trump and all this, all this time, yada, yada, yada. You can probably guess all the beats that anyone would say in the media about that kind of letter. letter. But the key to this letter is not that part where he's talking about moving on, national unity, that sort of thing. It, it, that is all the optics and window dressing that he's put around it because in the middle of all of that, the key quote, which is also part of his tweet that he sent out, says, quote, The Senate should vote to dismiss the article of impeachment once it, rece- it is received by the Senate, we will be delaying indefinitely, if not forever, the healing of this great nation if we do not do otherwise. And so that is the key quote from that. And they're jumping on him because, you know, he's talking about impeachment and healing and more. But the real news here is that Lindsey Graham is saying two things here. The first one is that Repub- this is Republicans opening offer to Democrats. The first thing the Republicans want to do is just dismiss, dismiss the impeachment article straight up without a trial. They just want to vote it out in the impeachment proceedings and toss everything out with just a simple vote. And so this, this, what this would mean is that there would be no trial. The Senate would just say, OK, House, you voted for impeachment. Well, we're just going to ignore it and toss it out. And so that's what Graham's first thing. He's saying, we want you to do that. And so that means you skip a trial. That means everything. And that means you, Joe Biden starts out and he gets, his, you know, everything he wants here. You get the legislation started, too. And everything just returns to normal. But Democrats don't get their impeachment trial here that they claim that they want. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing that you note here at the end is the phrase delaying indefinitely. And he goes on to say the healing of the nation. Well, the key phrase is indefinite delay. When he says healing of the nation, what he really means is Biden getting any of his cabinet picks, any of the Senate business getting conducted, this COVID-19 relief bill, anything that you want to go through Congress, it's going to get delayed indefinitely. Because Republicans just say, well, if you want to impeach him, we need to have a trial. Now, the last one lasted about 21 days. If you go back to the Clinton, I believe that was between 50 to 60 days, and the one before that going all the way to back to Andrew Johnson after the Civil War, that was around 80 days. And so for a new administration, starting out on day one, not being able to have a single one of your cabinet picks for at a minimum a month, maybe even longer, depending on what Republicans decide to do, because they could say, well, you know what, maybe when we want to call some witnesses here, maybe we want to have everybody in the Senate ask questions of all these different witnesses and delay indefinitely anything coming forward. So what they're saying is, what he's saying here is, this is our opening bid. Either you help us just chuck this entire impeachment article out and end this thing, or we're going to delay the trial and you're not going to get anything you want. So that is the opening. Uh, that's their opening offer here. Give us what we want or you're going to not get anything you want here for probably a month at minimum, probably longer. Because we'll just infinitely delay this. Because there's, there's, no, there's no time limit for any kind of trial proceeding. You can take this for as long as you want. So that's really what he's saying here. That's what this letter is about. It's sending a shot across the bow of Democrats saying, we're going to delay everything unless you chuck it out. 
Now, with that being the opening offer, of course, you could do a lot of Democrats could take things and say, okay, we'll just end all this. We'll just move on. We'll end this. Then we're going to do that. I don't think that's going to be the road they're going to take because they, Pelosi in particular, doesn't want to capitulate to Democrats. They want to force some kind of vote that makes Republicans squirm on this trial at the very end. And so I don't think Democrats are going to take this. So they, on the other hand, they want both Biden to get the appointments, they want the immediate legislation, and they want to trial. They want all three things here. The problem is, I think if you gave Biden and his team truth serum, they would probably admit that they don't even, even just even a little bit, they don't even want this impeachment trial going on because it distracts from them and the things that they want to do because they legitimately want to legislate here at the opening and try to build their administration out. They would rather have a fully staffed administration rather than dragging out the impeachment of an outgoing president. Now, the other thing that Graham says in that letter is that he says that impeaching a now, quote unquote, former president is unconstitutional. And I don't think that's true at all. The uh, if you look at the legislative history, if you look at just the history around this power, you can absolutely impeach a person who's out. I don't think you can impeach the president or it just won't have as much impact if you impeach him after two terms. But after just a single term and he's suddenly out of office and can run again, you can absolutely impeach that president. So he's wrong on that. But everything else is about having this opening bid and negotiating bid here, saying to Democrats, we're not going to give you what you want. We're going to delay everything. And Democrats are going to look at it and say, well, we're not going to take that deal. So what are we going to do next? So that suggests that, at least to me, if you look at this type of scenario in order to avoid dealing with anything, I think they'll have Pelosi just hold the articles of impeachment. It gives Democrats what they want immediately, which is the ability to pass legislation, get the Biden cabinet appointments through while still keeping the option of an impeachment trial alive for a later time. And, you know, I would agree partially with that. Like I said in the newsletter, I think it's important to get some of these Biden appointments through into his cabinet, especially if we're talking about defense and national security, intelligence, those sorts of things. We have an ongoing duty to to defend the nation and having people in those roles is important. So I think you're going to see a scenario here where Pelosi is just going to hold the article of impeachment and not send it over, get through these initial things and then look at a more opportune time to send the Senate into a trial and then kill any other business that can go through. So, I do think you're going to see that. I do think you're going to see them try to avoid, have this trial avoid hamstringing the beginning of the administration. If you do see them just go through with the trial opening, um, just to start out, they're, they're basically saying, well, we don't care about any of that. We think we can get through this without it seriously impacting the Biden administration, and we'll just deal with the political impacts later. But I don't think that will be the decision they decide to take. Now, I mentioned in the newsletter that I didn't know whether or not Democrats did all of this because they wanted Trump around later on. Because, you know, if you're if you're trying to just save the article of impeachment and you're trying to or you're trying to push it through in a way that's so partisan that people just automatically don't vote with you, that could be a way that you try to politically get what you want while also hurting the other side. But from the looks of things now and the way that they're reacting to everything and the way, specifically the way that Democrats are balking at the idea of a trial slowing down the Senate. This really just reeks of incompetence from Pelosi and her leadership team. They apparently did not consider the fact that going through and pushing through an impeachment was going to hamstring the new administration. So 
it, it really just looks like they were incompetent. They pushed through impeachment because they felt like they had to or they wanted to and they had the pressure to do it. So they went ahead and did it. And now they are between a rock and a hard place on trying to figure out how to start the new Biden administration. So that's the aftermath of impeachment. It's mostly at this point a political football that everyone's trying to figure out how to get rid of because it, it could seriously impact how the country has run here for the first few months after inauguration. But again, we're going to find out on Tuesday by the latest, because you're going to see the Senate come back into session, and they've got to decide, okay, what are we going to do here with the first few weeks of this administration? So that's impeachment. The other thing happening this week is the inauguration, and normally these things are just big political events, but the concern coming into this one it's something, again, people are concerned about what happened on January 6th is going to happen again on January 20th, just at a bigger level. So uh, CBS News was reporting on Sunday that the Department of Homeland Security has issued a new intelligence briefing that domestic terrorists pose the highest threat to President-elect Joe Biden's inauguration next week. A U.S. official confirmed to the CBS News on Friday Washington, D.C. is locking down ahead of January 20th. When J- Mr. Biden, when Mr. Biden will be officially sworn in on, on January 20th, some extremists are motivated by belief that Mr. Biden would be an illegitimate president, according to the bulletin put out by the FBI. It also mentions foreign adversaries amplifying disinformation in the run-up to the inauguration and after the Capitol riots. The bulletin also warns of violence against federal buildings, and according to one official uh, government, uh, there's also threats against government officials, government buildings, and federal and local fault law enforcement. The Homeland Security Bulletin was issued on Thursday, the same day that FBI Director Chris Wray said the agency is tracking, quote, an extensive amount of concerning online chatter as possible rallies and protests are planned in state capitals nationwide. Now, we saw some of this happen over the weekend where people were gathering in some state house capital places, and for the most part, nothing really happened here. You saw people disperse. I think one of the one of the funniest stories was that you had one of these anti-government protests pop up in Ohio, and people just sort of magically started disappearing on Sunday as the Browns game was starting. So their commitment to this was pretty was strong until you realized, oh yeah, there's a playoff game on. We need to go see that. So, but now that the Browns are out of the playoffs, I guess we'll have to see what they will do here. And of course, if you look at any pictures or video out of Washington D.C. right now. There's barbed wire fences. There are troops everywhere, including in the Capitol building. The last one of the major reports I said is they were sending in 10,000 National Guard to stand guard over the entire inauguration proceeding. I don't think you're going to see one of those events like we've seen in the past where you had people out on the mall. I just don't think that's going to happen right now, especially with all the violence. They are arresting basically anyone. I've seen at this point almost a daily news reports come out where some journalists will say, oh, Police in or Capitol Hill police have arrested somebody, and this person had a gun with so and so many rounds of ammunition with them. And inevitably, that turns out to be a false report that didn't mean anything. But still, that is what these reports are coming out. You see people just, just people are on high alert and they are sensitive to anything, even if it's a person who legitimately has a gun and they're being arrested either because the police misread their credentials when they were trying to get in or something else. But in any event, if you're in the Capitol, you you know this. If you're not, 
you should probably look at some of the coverage out of there because it is different. And and even Donald Trump had to issue another video here where he was calling for no more violence for this week ahead of his inauguration. And, and those types of videos are aimed at his res- supporters who have conducted a lot of this violence. And, you know, this is the kind of thing that they're, they're talking about when they're talking about domestic terrorism. They're more than likely talking about various militia groups. There are some others with specific names like the Proud Boys who they were saying they need to be dealt with. And in any event, you're, you're, you're looking at them and you're saying, okay, if there's concerning chatter and the FBI is issuing these warnings ahead of time, they're expecting something, they're sending in their troops, and so everyone has to be on high alert throughout the inauguration. So I'm curious to see how they are going to run because everyone is just high-strung right now in that city. And obviously with, you know, you see all the all the fences, all the military, all the precautions in place, it is sad, especially when you compare this basically to just four years ago when you when everybody was able to go in and go watch. So it is quite a different scene. So become Wednesday, the Biden administration is going to begin. And the main thing in front of them is the pandemic, aside from all the unrest that we're seeing in some of these cities. That could change come Wednesday. You know, January 6th changed a lot of things. Who knows? You may see more violence on the inauguration day. So I don't know. We'll see. But the main thing, aside from that, is the pandemic. And that's the main thing we'll focus on here the next segment and talking about what I would say is the good news that we finally have this week. So I'm going to take a break right here, and then after we come back, we will do the COVID-19 update. All right, so I'm going to talk through the numbers on the COVID-19 section of this a little bit different, just because there are some changing metrics, some changing numbers, and they're beginning to interact with each other a little bit differently due to the fact that we have vaccinations around and there's no more holidays that are mucking things up. So testing is fine. I'm really no longer concerned about testing at all. And that's been true for probably about a, about a month now. There were the dips with the, the different holidays and I thought they would bounce back. Things have more than bounced back. We're now at all-time highs with testing and setting new records every day. That will probably drop as testing becomes less important over the next few months, but it is still good to know that we have that capacity. So, but due to the rapidly increasing vaccinations, you have to factor these vaccinations into the rates and the raw numbers that we're seeing coming out of all the key uh, statistical categories that I've been tracking here over the last several months, practically now for an entire year. And... I think between the short answer of what's happening here and and why I'm excited about some of the numbers this week is that I think between vaccines and the higher infection rates that we've had over the last three months, herd immunity is really starting to kick in in a serious way because we're finally beginning to see all the top line categories. They've either stabilized and they've stopped increasing or they're dropping. So I'm going to go through after this why I think vaccines are the reason for that, but we'll start here at the top like we always do. As I said, the seven-day average on testing right now is sitting around 2 million, which is an all-time high, and we have some days where we're well above that, so there's no issues with testing at all. So everything that I'm about to say, it, it is within the it is within the the category of we know that this information is good because testing is good, testing is not being impacted by anything, and so we know what we have, and so that's telling us what's happening everywhere else. So the positivity rate on these tests has plummeted. Last week, you know, I was talking about how this was at an all-time high from May. You had positivity rates 
almost topping out at 14%. Last week we were sitting at 13.7, 13.8%. Well, this week the positivity rate has dropped down to 11.1%. So in a week's time, you're seeing over two basis points here where we've dropped in the positivity rate. So that is a an astonishing drop in a short amount of time. Normally you see this drop over a period of time as these surges go away. This was a very sharp drop off over the last week. And the raw numbers of new cases found each week is now also dropping. So we've had some single day highs of around 300,000 with the seven-day average getting close to hitting that midway part of around 250,000. And I was concerned about two or three weeks ago that we were going we were headed towards 300,000 new cases a day as the average. But that is not true anymore. Over this past week, those have dropped, and the seven-day average is back below 225,000 and falling. So between the positivity rate and the number of new cases falling like that, that is telling us that we have finally hit a peak on this current surge of the coronavirus, which started in the fall and has continued raging on through the holidays and up until through the winter. So we're finally beginning to see this drag off. And this decline is happening in every last single part of the country. It's not an isolated event. It's not a regional thing. We're one region that had a lot is suddenly drawing back. We're seeing this across the board. So cases are, are dropping. The positivity rate is dropping. If you follow your local state's numbers, you may have also seen those numbers beginning to, to draw back a little bit, and that is true largely across the board. Now, things are still high, far too high, but we're seeing we're nowhere near the peak that we were, and things appear to be dropping, both in real numbers and in the averages. That is also true, somewhat interestingly, in active hospitalizations. So active hospitalizations peaked at around 132,000 and change. The number of active hospitalizations now has dropped to around 126,000, so about a 6,000 uh, hospitalization drop, which is significant. It's not steep like some of the other numbers, but it is a leveling off and a drop from where we were headed. For a while, I was getting beginning to get pretty convinced we were going to hit 150,000 just based on trend lines, and now all of that is reversed. So it is interesting that both cases and hospitalizations are reversing around the same time. Normally, I would expect a little bit more of a lag time here, but they are leveling off at around the same time. And that's true of both the real number and the averages. And so it appears, I was looking through the charts on the COVID-19 tracking project, and it appears we topped out on the hospitalizations on January 6th, when hospitalizations were at an all-time high of 132,474 across the country. And after that day, things stabilized for a little bit and then started falling off. So... It's somewhat ironic that the worst hospitalization day was on January 6th. And so the, for just for tracking purposes, that is the day that it was probably the worst in the country, but it was one of the days where it was also the worst for the virus, and now everything has started to drop off. Now, to be clear, these numbers, too, are also still too high, and hospitals are still overwhelmed and hurting. But with things finally dropping by around 67,000, that is very good news, and it means that you're going to start seeing things sort of 
get back under control a little bit and the stress that has been placed on the healthcare system in the United States will no longer have to stretch any even further. It is going to be able to sort of draw back down. So cases and hospitalizations have been coming down. The death rate has stabilized, and that is a very important thing that is happening. It's not falling yet, but it's not climbing either. We're still sitting around a seven-day average of around 3,200 deaths. That is a little bit, it peaked a little bit closer to 3,300, so it's come back down just a smidge in the 3,200 range which obviously is still too high, and it's higher than any average that we saw in the spring, especially when you're considering we, over the last two or three weeks, we've had one-day highs in the 4,000 range, and we could still see some of those because the deaths metric is kind of erratic on that front. But if that is stabilizing, that indicates that we're having much better outcomes starting to come through here. And maybe having these vaccinations go through with some of these elderly and other communities could be preventing that from growing any more. Overall, the United States and the vaccines is where we're going to go here next, because that is the most important thing here. And overall, the United States has administered 14.3 million doses of the various COVID-19 vaccinations. And we're averaging right at 900,000 doses a day if you look at the seven-day averages. And that rate is continuing to go up every week, every day almost, but usually every week if you're averaging all this out. And I expect we're going to see some big numbers above the 1 million mark each day over the next week. Over this past 7 to 10 days, we had started seeing some of our first 1 million vaccination days. We've seen some 1.1s, some almost 1.2 millions. And then it's kind of like testing. The reason you have to average this out is because on the weekends, things sort of slack off. You don't see those big numbers that you normally see Tuesday through Thursday. And so on the weekends, things sort of get cut in half. And so that's kind of what's happening here. So, for instance, on Sunday, there are around 600,000 and change vaccinations. On a big day, you might see double of that on a Wednesday. So that's why you kind of have to average things, these things out and kind of figure out, okay, this what's happening on a daily basis and how can we project this forward? So that's what we're saying. We're seeing 900,000 a day. I think by the end of the month, we're going to see that be at a minimum of 1 million. And that is what, uh, if, you, if you sort of place that over the population, that means we have had 4.4 doses have been administered for every 100 people, if you take that 14.3 and look over the entire population. So globally, though, we've vaccinated 42.2 million, which means if you take the ones that the United States have done against that global number, the United States accounts for 34% of all vaccination doses which have been done. And that's one of the reasons why I've been pushing back really hard on the narrative and the notion in the media that the vaccine rollout rollout is just a quote-unquote failure. Because we've just flat out vaccinated more people than anyone else. If you want their, your top three countries, they are in no particular order, the United States, Israel, and the United Kingdom, who have all three vaccinated a ton of people and would account for a lot of the good vaccination plans that we've seen. Now, are we perfect? No, far from perfect. But we are one of the best countries on the planet at this China is also saying that they have good numbers on this, but if you just look at the effectiveness of their vaccines and you look at how they've lied in every other serious place on on the vaccination front, I wouldn't trust 
anything they're saying. So I would say that by far and away, the United States is the country you need to look at here as being the best one on this. And if we're at that, it's hard to call the vaccine rollout a failure. So the most important numbers for the United States right now, as I said, we've handed out about 14.3 million doses. Around 2 million people have had the complete vaccination schedule, so that means they've had both the first and second vaccinations. So those are going to be the people who got it in the first three weeks back in December. So those are going to be your people in the pilot programs and the people who got those first ones. So for the most part, that 14.3 number is not going to be a complete vaccine profile. It's not complete immunity because, of course, it takes time for immunity to build. However... The falling COVID-19 cases, your positivity rates, your hospitalizations and all, and the fact that they're falling must be examined against the fact that we have widespread vaccinations both going out and can be counted in the millions. So we've, we've clearly gone past the peak of this current surge with the virus, and we are beginning to hit solid numbers on the vaccination front. So... That means the two most important numbers that you have right now are, one, the number of people who have had at least one vaccination dose, so that's the 14.3 million number, and then you place that against the number of people who have had the virus. And so if you go only by positive tests, that's approximately around 24.3 million people. Now, obviously... That's a very imperfect number because it double counts double tests. People have multiple tests, multiple positive tests, all that sorts of things. But, and I'll get to why I'm kind of discarding that, if you add both the vaccinated number and that positive test number together, you get 38.6 million people who have either had the vaccine or the virus. And so that gives you approximately a number of around 12% of the population with some kind of immunity that we know of, either through a positive test or a vaccine. Now, I know this number is wrong and inaccurate. I know that for two reasons. First, it's wrong because of what I mentioned earlier, the people who have had multiple tests. And so you had some, the basic thing here is your people in sports. They're trying to figure out when they can play again. And so they're testing every day, sometimes multiple times a day, trying to find that antibody to figure out when they test negative and they can start playing again. So I can get you a whole lot of positive tests that are, yes, they're positive, but they're not unique positive tests. So that's the first reason that number is not wholly reliable. But it's also inaccurate because of the asymptomatic spread of the virus. And we know we're picking up some of that with testing, but we know we're not picking up on all of that. If you have symptoms, more than likely or not that you are not, you have had a test. If you're asymptomatic, it's less likely that you've had a test of any kind. And it's estimated that up to 40% of all cases are asymptomatic and will never be known because of that. And so if you've had it this way and you have immunity to the virus, it's likely you don't even know because you haven't shown a symptom and you don't know that your body has developed some kind of immunity. And so if you want to know if you've had it this way, the easiest way to do that is to go get an antibody test, which are available at a lot of mainstream pharmacy places, your Kroger's, your 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 clinics at, at, at Kroger, Walgreens, CVS, all those kinds of places. They, I know that they're all running some variation of these tests. I had a friend get one recently. She had been exposed multiple times. 
to people who had the virus, both positive and false positive. And so she decided, well, I'll just, I haven't had any symptoms, but I'll go see. And she hers came up negative. So that was a good thing. But it also told her that she had been protected throughout all these different times. So it can be helpful if you know you've, you've had exposure in the past to know whether or not you have these antibodies. But anyway, while the 38.6 million, which is the vaccinated and the, the people who have had it, is a wrong number, it's not wrong in that it's too high. It's actually wrong in that it's too low of a number. And it's not bringing in all of the very likely asymptomatic people who we have here. And so once you try trying to get an account of the full breadth of people who could have asymptomatic, the only way you can do that is to go through some different ways or you're doing some statistical modeling. And so the, the models that I've been watching on this and that I use place the low end of this number where you're taking infection rates and the vaccination rates. And they place the low end of this at around 52.6 million people. And so that's your people who have had vaccines and that's your people who have had the virus. And so that 52.6 million people, that's around 16% of the population. Now remember, with only the, the other number, we were only talking about 12%. So already on a low end modeled number here, we're assuming 16% of the population has had this and that's over 50 million people. If you go on the very high end of that, uh, that estimate, you get 118.3 million people, which gets you nearly 36% of the population, so more than one in three that have had it in some way, which is a pretty high number with who have either had it or now have a vaccine. Now, we know the vaccine number. That's a hard number. It's not going to change. It, what we're trying to factor in here are the number of people who have had an asymptomatic case. Now, if you go with the middle number between those two, just the median result, if you're splitting the, the middle between there, and this is kind of like, you know, you're looking at a hurricane track. This is just the middle of the track. It could go either way. But the middle of that is 79 million or 24%. So nearly a fourth of all the U.S. population has immunity either through vaccination or have had, had the virus, which is a lot of people. Now, I don't know what the, the actual number is, and no one really could tell you what it is, but the time that it's going to take us to achieve actual herd immunity is going to be much shorter than we think it is, and that's primarily because we're going to know in real time if we're spreading the slow, if we're slowing down the spread of the virus, because we're going to be seeing these daily reports and we're going to be seeing how many people are getting it, how many people are going to the hospital, and so on and so on. And so the threat, if we begin to, if this is already here, where you only have 14.3 million people who have some kind of vaccine dose, and that has brought down the spread of the virus already from its peaks, I'm willing to say that within two or three months, we're going to be able to be safe to reopen as a country in full with no other restrictions anywhere. Now, the caveat to that is you could always have some kind of of mutation with the virus that makes these vaccines unusable, but so far that has not happened. Barring that, you know, knock on wood and everything, in two, three months, if we see these kind of things where even here with this low number of people who are vaccinated, if that's bringing down the numbers of the spread, then the more we vaccinate, obviously, the more these are going to go down and you're going to see the slowing of the spread of this virus. The other thing happening here. And this is, we knew this when we did it, but it, it, we're kind of seeing this in real time too. The other thing that's happening is who we vaccinate matters. 
and we focused our vaccinations on the elderly population and those in at-risk categories. As we start getting those people immune, that will drop our hospitalization and death rates because that is where your worst cases are going to be. Now, I know every newspaper in every city and every state has run the, oh, this person who was totally healthy and had no at-risk symptoms, they got really sick and they died in the hospital immediately and they're gone because of the coronavirus. And so that's why you have to take it, quote-unquote, take it seriously. Yes, that is true. That is also the exception to the rule. The bulk of our of the deaths that have come from this virus have come from at-risk categories of people who had pre-existing conditions or were, were in, in one of the more elderly age brackets, and oftentimes those two categories overlapped, and so that's where we had the highest mortality rates. But if we're vaccinating these people, that's going to drop, you know, that that's where your hospitalization numbers are going. If those start dropping... Those people are no longer going, so that means that's going to impact the people who are going to the hospital, and it's going to impact the type of person who's going to get it and get deathly sick. Because if the people who are in the worst off and can't get this virus can no longer get infected by it, that's going to create better outcomes for the people who are getting it because they are the ones who are not at risk. That doesn't mean you're not going to have these severe cases. It's just not you're not going to have as many. And so... That was the thought that I had as I was watching hospitalization and case numbers drop at the same time, because there should be some lag here between the new cases and the hospitalizations and even the stabilization of death. There should be some difference here. And the fact that there isn't suggests that our targeted vaccination plan is working, and it's working by taking out the at-risk communities for this virus and removing them from the equation. And as that happens, that means our outcomes are improving across the board. So, in other words, what I'm saying is that we've peaked on all the current surge, the hospitalizations, and deaths have stabilized. And those types of things have only happened right here when a massive vaccination campaign has gotten underway. Which, to me, says that the vaccine rollout is a success. And it is a success because it's showing up in the numbers. Now, I realize that this is not what the media is reporting. I realize that the media, 91% of the American media stories on the COVID-19 virus are all negative. And so I know they're not repeating the, they're repeating these kinds of numbers and these kinds of stories because they fundamentally believe that if they report a positive story on this virus that people will not take it seriously and that will lead to a spike. So they see it as their duty to be as negative as possible. And of course, the other thing here is that people are only clicking on and repeating negative stories. So we have created, if you go outside the United States, it's about a 50-50 shot whether or not you see a negative or a positive story. If you get into medical and scientific journals talking about this thing, it's about a 65% you see a negative story, whereas, you know, 35% of them are are positive in some way. And it sort of makes more sense for the scientific journals to, to be a little bit more negative because they want to know what the most negative aspects of the virus are and how to avoid them and what to do, how we're responding. I would expect more negativity there. But the fact that you will find more positivity in a scientific journal 
compared to the American media is mind-boggling. And it really is because they have decided that the only way to properly respond to this is to be negative, and that's despite the fact that right now it's very clear, if you look at these numbers, that, it, that we've hit a peak and things are coming down and the vaccination rollout is working. Now, my concern with them reporting that the vaccination rollout is a failure, the people are going to look at that and say, oh, the vaccination rollout is a failure. If it's a failure, I need to ignore it because I don't need to get involved with something that is a failure. But that is not what's happening here. All data says that this thing is working, and if these trend lines suggest, it's going to drop the these numbers precipitously. And, and I, I'm expecting that because it's exactly what happened in Israel. Israel is about the size of one of our states, and they have been able to vaccinate at a much faster rate. And there was, I, I'm having to think off the top of my head here, but at one point they were bringing in for them a very high number of around 80,000 people a day in their new cases, three or four weeks for this vaccination campaign where they have, at this point, they've done over a fifth of their population where they've vaccinated. And that number of 80,000 dropped down in half to 40. And I want to say it's under 20. And it's, I think it right now it's under 10,000 new cases a day. And that's because they've had a very huge vaccination campaign and they've also had the shutdowns. So between the two of them, they have pretty much halted the spread of the virus and they are saving people right now. We can't do the shutdown part of this but we can do the vaccination part. And all the data is pointing in the opposite direction of a failure. It's saying that it's a success. And I'll add this here at the end. If we're vaccinating 1 million people a day, we're very easily going to hit the 100 million doses in 100 days metric that the Biden administration has set as its quote-unquote ambitious goal. Because without him doing a single thing, if he literally just sits in his office and does nothing new with the pandemic, we're going to hit that mark because we're already doing a million a day. In fact, if we don't, if we don't increase even a little bit from the 900,000 a day, that we're, the average that we're at right now, that'll add in 100 days 90 million people. You add that to the 14 million people that we have already had the vaccination, and boom, you have 100 million. Now, I think we're going to surpass that pretty easily because we're, we're, we've grown up to 900,000 in our seven-day averages, and I'm fully expecting us to hit one to one and a half million. The real ambitious goal is not 100 million doses in 100 days. That's a dumb goal. Everybody's going to claim, I mean, the, with the way the media is reporting this now, they're going, to, they're going to claim Joe Biden is some kind of savior for achieving 100 million doses in 100 days. I'm telling you right now, we're going to hit that. And he doesn't have to do a thing about it. There's a reason they set that mark, not just because it's catchy, but because that's what's going to happen in 100 days. That's what we're going to do. The real goal here is not us doing a million doses a day. We need to do more than that. We actually need to be much closer to 3 million doses a day. That's an ambitious goal. And if we did that, because if you, if you take the 1 million doses, if you take the 1 million over 100 days, that, take, that means you're going to take about 330 days to vaccinate the entire country. You don't want that. So we need to be much closer to the 3 million mark, which is going to cut that timeline down by quite a bit. And in either event, if you hit the 3 million, that mean, if you hit that 3 million mark, that means we're going to hit that herd immunity so much faster and it's going to allow us to reopen at full force that much faster. So these are, are just great numbers. And we're seeing this with only 14 million people with just one or two doses. I mean, remember here, 
there's only about 2 million people who have had the two doses. This is a two-dose vaccine. We're 14 million in, and it's already taken us off the highs from these peaks. We're going to get even more of these vaccinations going out there. And I know I've seen some people saying, well, I had the first dose and my friend over here, they still got it. Well, yeah, that's because the efficacy of the vaccine, if with only one dose, is around 50 to 60 percent. You get that second dose, that gets you up to the 90 to 95 percent. I'm actually pretty positive it's going to be a little bit higher than that. So you have to give your body both time to build up the the immunity of the first dose, and then you have to get that second dose and let it build up the full immunity. There's going to be a little bit of a time here. But even with that, we're seeing impacts in our data. That is very, very exciting and a very good piece of news. So for the first time in a long time. There's almost nothing but good news in the COVID-19 uptake that we have here. Now, obviously, even with numbers dropping, the current numbers still too high. They need to come down, and it's going to take some time for us to work through this backlog of 126,000 hospital patients. But things are turning around, and they're turning around right as we're administering the vaccine. So the more people who have even one dose of this vaccine the better off we'll be. And that that was going to slow the spread of this thing and make it beatable in the long run. So that's your COVID update for this week, ending January 17th. It's good news. I'm very excited to share all that with you. I'm excited to see these numbers. I'm excited to see what comes in over this next few weeks to see more of this come in. And hopefully sometime this year, we can retire this segment for good. I have no idea what I'll do to replace this because this has just kind of been one of those go-to things. I'm like, okay, this week I can do this. But I'm very much looking forward, though, to putting this pandemic in the rearview mirror. So that's the COVID update for this week. I wanted to highlight in the light item segment this week a, a, a thing from Barstool Sports. They have set up a relief fund that they've set up to help out small businesses and restaurants. And they've raised over 25, I think it's over 26 million as of now. They may even go on over 27. And they are giving it out to small businesses to help keep them afloat. And Barstool founder Dave Portnoy, he then does, once they get the, the funds ready for this, he will FaceTime with a small business to let them know that he's donating money to them to help keep them afloat. And so I thought I would share one of the, some of the audio of one of the videos that he's done. If you want to go help out with him, the, uh, you just go to the Barstool Fund at barstoolsports.com. I'm going to leave a link in the show notes if you want to check that out. If you don't want to donate, but you still want to be involved, they offer merchandise that you can purchase on their website, and they will send that money to the restaurants in need. So here is Dave Portnoy making one of those videos now, and you can listen to him giving this restaurant owner good news that they are going to survive. What's going on? Lauren, right? How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So obviously got your video, your email. And actually we saw this, your story, like you were on the local news, right? First. Yeah. So we saw that. I saw that a million people sent it to me. And I also saw in the video, you're like, yeah, we don't reach out. We're like not a reach out person. We feel weird doing it. But I'm glad somebody, you, whoever, we got the email because, you know, you're the exact type businesses we're looking to help. Like, what, 81 years in the family? Um, this year, as of 2021, and it is going to be 88 years in the family. We 
which is insane. I will be the fifth generation to hopefully take over. Praying, fingers crossed, that we make it through the year. Um, honestly, thank you guys so much. Everything that you guys do, like, you have no idea how much it means to my family, to all the small businesses across the country. Like, I'm literally standing in work right now, like, shaking, like, about to cry. Like, I'm just, I'm so blessed. Thank you, guys. Like, God bless you. No, you're you're a great spokesman for it. I mean, I like I said, I saw the original, I think. You know, this is why we're doing it. So, that, like what you said, make sure that you're there on the other end. That's we'll make sure of it. We want to help whatever you guys need to make sure each month that you know you guys are still there because places like you guys, you can't replace. Uh, it's the oldest restaurant in DC. It's not the oldest restaurant in Washington DC. I think the old Evan uh, has that has that title. So. They're the oldest restaurant in Washington, D.C., but we are the oldest family-owned restaurant in Washington, D.C. Got it. All right. So, perfect. Um, We want to help. I'm glad we can do the call. I'm glad we were able to find you guys. And we'll get in contact soon. We get the funds really quick, what you need, within like 72 hours. And each month, we'll just reconnect and make sure you guys are doing okay. Sweet. Well, thank you so much. Like, seriously, you have no idea how much this means to, to the entire restaurant. Like, not even just my family, but like all the employees here, too. Like... Good, good. That's what we want. We're glad we can help, and uh, we'll be in touch soon. Oh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of your day. All right, you too. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye. So that's Barstool Sports and what they're doing to help out small businesses impacted by the coronavirus and to prevent them from closing down. A lot of these are family-owned places that... Some of them can't afford to get a loan to survive during this time, so these donations are helping them keep afloat. So again, if you want to join in and help them out, you can check out Barstool Sports. Go to the Barstool Fund there, and they will gladly take your donation, or they will direct you to a place where you can buy something from their shop where all the money goes to these restaurants. That's all I've got for today's show, though. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you'd like to enjoy it, make sure you send in those five-star reviews to help us out. Share the podcast and more. I always look, look forward to hearing where you guys are sharing it. I hope you can tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.